to be able to to have Kevin Gartner come last week and preach. Very nice young man, a fine young man. That <laughs> he's not really that young, I guess, but he's young to me. Uh, I met him when he was going through the examining committee, maybe uh, six months ago, and and all of that. And where he is, he works for a Table Talk. Now he's one of the editors at Table Talk magazine, and. Uh, so he's associated with Ligonier Ministry, and he doesn't get to preach that often. But he, you know, he wrote me a note too that basically echoed what he wrote to you guys. But even more than that, just the thankfulness he was to have the opportunity to come and spend that special time, not only sharing with you the Word of God, but but also with a fellowship with the, uh, the after church brunch and all of that. Just you really touched his heart, and by doing that, you really touched my heart too. So thank you for that. Uh, We are in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. Uh, I stand before you this morning probably least prepared to preach a sermon as I ever have been in the last 25 years. So whatever comes out of this is going to have to be definitely uh, a gift of God. No doubt about it, uh, Lori and I, you know, my, my normal routine is Saturday evenings I'll begin to concentrate more on things, and I always get up very early on Sunday morning, sometimes two thirty, three o'clock, and that's when I really try to bring things together as much as I can, and eventually I'll usually go back to bed uh, for a little while and all of that, but with all that was going on with Caroline, I didn't get home from Gainesville till 2 o'clock last night. Uh, and all of that, but uh, we are in uh, chapter 11, and just to remind us of where we were before this, uh, remember the great angel, this vision of the great angel that John had seen, and he had this little book in his hand that was open, and he was told to come and take the book, and he he took the book, and, and really I think, you know, people want to speculate on what the book was, uh, but based upon the way that this particular chapter ends, I really think there's good reason for us to believe that basically it's the gospel, because what you're going to find at the very end of chapter 10 is, is the angel commissioning John, he says this, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues. Uh, and, and kings, and remember, he was told to eat the little book. And then in his mouth, it was really sweet, and then when it got to his stomach, that it was really bitter. Uh, and, and we t- considered last week or two weeks ago how there's a sense in which you can say that about the gospel, that there is a real sweetness about the gospel if you believe it, if you come to know that it's true. But at the same time, we understand that there's also this, this almost bitter undercurrent, you know, this sense of judgment that's coming and, uh, and those things that go along with that. And if you've ever considered the gospel much, you know what I'm talking about. I was talking with Grace Dickinson about this very thing a number of years ago, and she said, you know what, Keith? She said, the gospel is only good news if you believe it. If you don't, it's very bad news. 
So John is to go and to share in all of that, and we understand that there's a sense in which every believer uh, has responsibility in this this area to to spread the gospel amongst people that we see and we know and people that we maybe don't know, but we have God gives us all opportunities to tell other people what we know, and we have the best message there is for anybody to know, and we can't keep it to ourselves. We need to take the most of every opportunity that Jesus gives to us. And let me tell you, for that to happen, it's going to mean sometimes you bending and you twisting and you doing things that are totally contrary to your regular, normal human nature. Very often going out on limbs that you don't feel comfortable going out on. It means going the extra mile. It means taking the extra step. It means going out of your way. It means doing what we're talking about with willful intention. Okay. Chapter 11, we're still in that interlude that takes place between the sixth and seventh trumpets. We're still in the second woe. So chapter 11, verse 1, And there was given a measuring rod like a staff, given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it and, uh, and leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. Uh, And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast uh, that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after three and a half days... The breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So John is given this 
rod to measure the temple of God. Not the first place in Scripture we've seen something like this happen. Ezekiel, in chapter 40 uh, of his prophecies, in four words, for several chapters, he was given uh, a rod to measure the temple of God. And we have all the mentions in those uh, listed there for us in the book of Ezekiel. Now, we need to understand something, that that was a physical temple. Just like the temple of Solomon was a physical temple. Just like the temple of Herod in the days of Jesus was a physical temple. What I will remind us of this morning is this, and that is the New Testament redefines many things you find in the Old Testament or clarifies them in a sense. And one of the things that's very clear in the New Testament is you and I don't need to be concerned about physical temples. Because in the New Testament, it makes it very clear that the temple of God is the people of God. That if indeed the Holy Spirit indwells you, that you are part of that temple. So there's a sense in what's going on here. What John is doing is he's measuring uh, the church, if you want to say. And the church has already been described uh, earlier on a few chapters back as, as, as a, a number of so many that, that, that no one can count them. Why is it important to do this? It's important to do this for a lot of reasons, but one of those is that this church is about to fall under great attack. He also gives him instructions to leave out the court which is outside the temple, which in the days of Jesus was known as the court of the Gentiles. How would we apply this to where we are today? Well, one of the things you're going to find is this, this chapter, there's a sense of there's a setting apart. Just as we've seen all through this book of Revelation, there's a sense over and over again of a setting apart. Those who are the people of God, those who have the seal of God, as opposed to those who don't. And we've seen all kinds of judgments fall. And sometimes the people of God have suffered right along with the other folks. But other times, just like we find in the the later plagues in Egypt, in the days of Moses... God uses those to set apart his people. One of the things I really believe is going on in this chapter is we need to be expecting a time that apparently has not yet come that will precede the coming of Jesus, which will be a time when persecution of Christians and of the church will greatly intensify. Not lessen, not grow weaker, but become stronger. Almost to the point that it believes it has victory over the church. There's been all kinds of persecutions and and martyrdoms and, and, and things like that going on in every historical period of the world. Since Jesus returned back to heaven, 
It's happened in every generation. In every generation, there have been people who have believed that things were so bad that it had to be the time that... And what I would say to you, what we're talking about here is what's called the Great Tribulation. And one of the points I want to make here is this. is believers are there. Believers are suffering in this. Not that they are mysteriously removed from all of it before the bad stuff really happens. There are people, there are church people, they are church people, but at the same time, they're not God's people. You and I don't know necessarily who those particular people happen to be. There may be some in this room. We can't read anybody's heart. We can, however, look at the fruit in people's lives sometimes. And sometimes that's a real clue for us. And let me just tell you, if there there are people claiming to be church people, but there really is no fruit for Christ in their life, there's good reason to question whether they really are God's people. And we've known people like this. When it's convenient, they name the name of Christ. When it's convenient, they, uh, you know, they, they go to church and they do this, that, and the other. And Jesus makes it real clear in the parable of the sowers that there's going to be people like that. And in the parable of the tares, he makes it very clear that some of those people are there to cause trouble. And I don't want to read too much into this, but it seems to me that maybe what's underlying this or what Jesus is teaching here is that there's going to come a time when they're going to be removed. And he makes that very clear in the parable of the wheat and the tares. That when? At the end. One of the things Jesus is going to do is going to be to purify his church. There will be no people hiding no longer in the pews. And I just want to encourage all of you to continue to test your heart constantly. Because it's easy for us sometimes to convince us of a reality that's not really a reality. Test yourself. Don't, uh, well, let me say to you this morning, you need to have an assurance of your salvation. You can have that. Scripture encourages it. But it's also easy to have a false sense of salvation. And I think that I don't believe it's true for people here for the most part. I don't believe any, of anybody here that I know of, okay? But you know people, you've known people in your life that are Christians on convenience, that when it's a real challenge or puts them in an awkward position and and et cetera, et cetera, they're just like everybody else. You follow what I'm saying? 
So I just want us to think about this, and we've seen this over and over again, and that is there is a time that is going to come when there's going to be a separation. Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate the good fish from the bad fish. He's going to separate the tares out of the wheat. And the church is going to be absolutely purified. It's purified in heaven right now. You need to understand that. But it'll be purified here on earth as well at that time. No more counterfeits. Only those who truly are of the people of God. Who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And who serve him in their life. They will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months now. Most conclude that that's Jerusalem, and there's good reason to believe that because of some other things that are said here. One of the things I want to point out to you is we're going to start getting into numbers. You know, 42 months and uh, you know other numbers, 1,260 days and you know, this, that, and the other, but they all come down to being the same time frame. There's only, you know, used, it's just time being expressed in in different units. So they all are referenced to the same thing. And you find that here in this second chapter of, or second verse of chapter 11, this 42 months. Uh, there are people who believe that this is a reference to what happened in the, with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. When the holy city was demolished, the temple of God was torn down to the foundation stones. And it's still in that condition today. There's good reason for us to believe that if indeed John wrote this letter before 70 A.D. That in fact there are things that in a real sense of the word were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by the Romans. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days which is the same thing as 42 months. Clothed in sackcloth. Now, who are these mysterious witnesses? Listen to the description. They're olive trees and lampstands. They stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone desires to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, without reading any further, you should be saying, gosh, that sounds at least a little bit about a lot like Elisha and like Moses. Remember, there really is very often overlapping we see with with Moses and the exodus out of Egypt and the plagues that fell upon the Egyptians, the Israelites with the Egyptians first, but eventually plagues that fell upon the Egyptians exclusively to set them apart from Israel. 
Does this mean that Moses and Elijah are going to reappear again? Well, we know this. We know that Elijah is one of the two people in the Bible that didn't die. We also know that Elijah is the last person mentioned in the Old Testament. And we also know that Jesus basically says that John the Baptist is Elijah. Right? There's a sense in which we might say this. Well, what about this? Both Moses and Elijah, where did they appear with Jesus? And and John saw it. Do you understand that John's talking here in reference to people that he's actually seen? Moses and Elijah came on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John was one of those four disciples that Jesus had taken with him. That is, a, that is a message right there that God's not done with Moses and Elijah. It's not like he, they did their ministry here on earth and he took them to heaven to be with him. And they're just in retirement now. And there's reason for us to believe in this that maybe God still has some things for Elijah and Moses to do. Now, we do know that Moses died. The Bible says very definitely that Moses did die. His body died. But it could be that these two witnesses are not necessarily Elijah and Moses, but they are people that very much can be likened to Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses empowered by God to do miraculous things? You betcha. You think about this. Elijah, when the king sent his first captain with his 50 to arrest him, what happened? Elijah called down fire from heaven and it consumed them completely. The second 50 came and the same thing happened. So, I mean, there really is a lot of likeness here, but at the same time, I don't want us to go to the point that we can go, yeah, this is Moses and this is Elijah. Because God can empower, he can empower Charlie Barker to do that stuff if he wants to. The main thing we need to get from this is what are they witnessing to? They're witnessing God of God's truth in the world. There's a sense in which they represent the church. That this is the purpose of God. One of the primary purposes of God's church in the world is to witness of him to the unbelieving world around them. Chapter or verse 4 talks about olive trees. Olive branches are symbols of peace in the ancient world. Lampstands, if we go all the way back to the beginning chapters of Revelation, remember the seven lampstands. Were those seven churches? 
So there's a sense in which the church is included in all of this, I would imagine, to be witnesses. And let me tell you, sometimes it's easy to be a witness. Sometimes it's really, really hard to be a witness. You and I have been given granted freedoms living in the nation that we are with freedom of speech and freedom of religion to freely witness to people. Probably in a way that, in a manner that no other people on the face of the earth have ever had. In other words, God has made it just as easy for you and for I, or you and me, as he can. We can do it without fear of retribution. Well, we're all very aware of the world as it is today, and there's a sense in which it seems the darkness is growing around us all the time, right? And we know that fundamental rights, that, that our Constitution is guaranteed. A Constitution was ratified by God himself. That we can foresee or kind of see in the distance that things continue on the path that they are on now. That, that, that we can see these freedoms that we have now eroding away. There could come a time when, right now today, it's very easy to be a Christian in the United States in most places. Not that people are not persecuted, not that people are not ridiculed sometimes, and that sort of thing. But by and large, it's easy for us to be Christians and to live as Christians. We don't have all the hindrances and etc. that a lot of other people do. But we know that, that there's wickedness in this world. And this wickedness, this evilness, has a passion. And in the world, that passion is to overcome the church of Jesus Christ. And it will do anything in its power to do that. And it will rejoice when it happens. When they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Talk about this beast a little bit. It's not the devil. This is not Satan at this point. This is an evil being that is closely allied with him. Sometimes he's called the man of lawlessness. Sometimes he's called the beast. Revelation a number of different times. Notice where he comes from. He comes from the abyss. He comes from hell. That's where his origin is. And what is his passion? To make war against the witnesses. Those two witnesses in particular. Why? Because the beast hates them. The beast abhors them. The beast will do anything to kill their message. And what is the best way to kill a message? It is to kill the messenger. Notice here that even though these witnesses were given miraculous powers by God, 
They actually die at the hands of the beast. He kills them. Now, can you imagine the rejoicing of the wicked world going on when something like that happens? The beast and maybe even Satan at this point really believe that they have finally become the victors. That they have finally won their way. That the road is open for them now to do anything and everything of wickedness and evilness that their little heart desires. No one to stand in their way. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. When's the last time you saw a dead body laying anywhere for any period of time? Things like this have a real shock factor. When Jack Miller, whom Laura and I knew, Personally, we got to know him through our work that we did in Uganda initially. But when Jack Miller first went to Uganda, the Ugandan Holocaust was still in full bore. And I can remember one day he describing the fact that you, you went through the streets of Kampala, there were dead bodies laying all over the place. They were left there intentionally. The purpose was to evoke fear in people. There, there, there was an underlying message there, and that is this to Christians, because you need to understand that this is called the Ugandan Holocaust because it was directed at Christian Ugandan Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, murdered by the hundreds of thousands. The message being... Keep doing what you're doing, and this could very well be you. If it happened to them, it can just as much happen to you. So you better keep your mouth shut. You better forget about this witnessing business that you've been told you're supposed to be about doing. And let me tell you, the church in Uganda is thriving and mushrooming and growing like a wildfire today. As much as Idi Amin and his henchmen tried to stomp it out, they failed. Even though there were times when they really believed that they had killed it. They had struck the death blow. We're going to see some distinguishing things begin to take more of a central stage here. And and one of those is this, is, you know, up to this point, you you think about this, you know, the great city. We want to jump to the conclusion it's talking about Jerusalem. but, But let me just tell you, in the chapters coming up, there's going to be a city that's called great. And it's not Jerusalem, it's Babylon. 
which is representative of the wicked and evil world, of Satan in his realm, and the beast uh, in all of that. And the holy city becomes known more and more as New Jerusalem. I'm going to see this transition kind of take place as we get into more chapters along the way. Obviously, we can't conclude anything else other than you know, the reference of their Lord where he was crucified. It's Jerusalem, but what I want to say to you that you know, the Jerusalem that crucified Jesus was a false Jerusalem. It was a Jerusalem that professed God but had, had taken true and real religion and warped it and bent it and twisted it and made it into something that was wicked and evil that Jesus spoke out against constantly and continually. He fought against it. It was the enemy that he attacked over and over again. False religion in the city of Jerusalem and other places. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. How did they torment those people? By just simply telling them the truth of God. That's the only thing they were guilty of. But, see, they think that's the end of the story now. They think the battle's over. They think we've won. We've done what we set out to do. That Satan ultimately set out to overthrow God. He wanted the throne of God. He tried to exalt himself in the place of God. He believes at this point he's done it. And there's great rejoicing going on as a result of it. But God's not dead. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. And what happened? Great fear fell upon those were beholding them. See, I, I really think one of the things we need to glean from this, there's really bad time coming for the church. That one of the things that we should suspect or expect before the second coming of Christ is not that every Believer is going to be raptured out of the world before it all takes place. But there is a time of intensive persecution that is unmeasurable by anything that has taken place yet. 
And I really believe this is what Jesus refers to as the great tribulation. All the way back in the Olivet Discourse. So what do we glean from all this? There have been times through the history, you know, there have been times through the history when, when people thought that the church of Jesus Christ had been all but snuffed out. Can you imagine the rejoicing that took place in the wicked realm when Jesus was crucified and died? A reflection of that taking place here. And then the resurrection took place. There's another resurrection coming. It's a universal resurrection. And it's going to involve absolutely every person, every person that has ever been, period. For those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those who are the children of God, those who have the seal of God upon them, It will be a resurrection unto eternal life. Body and spirit reunited, perfected, no sin, no more. Paradise, loving one another fully, completely, absolutely, never hurting another person, never being hurt by another person, ever in all of eternity. And it will go on and on and on. And the longer it goes, the better it gets. But there will be a great number who stand in God's judgment. And as Revelation describes it, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Also, for all of eternity. See, there's the sweetness. But there's also a sense of bitterness. We really care about people. I got a question for us all. How can we keep it to ourselves? How can we keep it to ourselves? We can't. We must not. We Jesus has you here for a reason. And the reason is not for you to live out your life in the way that you picture it's supposed to be, and this, that, and the other. Everyone in this room who truly believes is here for the reason of serving him, of witnessing of him to this unbelieving world around us, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what's going on in our life. He's the Lord. We're His. Will you this morning, with willful intention, commit yourself to tell at least one person about Jesus this week? To have a conversation with someone about Jesus this week?
Are you serious enough about it to do something like that? Well, let me tell you, there's an easy way to do that. Stand on the side of the road this afternoon. There's all kinds of ways we can make a difference, guys. Let me tell you, life chain used to be a lot bigger than it is now. It's dwindling every year. Fewer and fewer people go to it. And I've heard all kinds of excuses. Somebody might throw a brick at me or, you know, my wife might get hurt or this, that, or the other. Those excuses hold no weight in the court of God. None. Being a believer means putting your toe to the line time after time after time. And there's all kinds of really easy ways for us to do it. So what are you doing this afternoon? Let me tell you, I would be there, and the people that are there every year know I would be there, but for one thing, I've got to be with my daughter and maybe my granddaughter. What are you doing this afternoon? Two to three o'clock. You don't have to say a word to anybody. As a matter of fact, you're not supposed to stand out there and have all kinds of conversations about things. It's supposed to be a time of prayer and worship. Those signs that we have on the back, they have, they have some of the psalms that you can sing through that you can pray through and things like that. Not a time just to get together and chit-chat. It's a time to witness to this world of the one who is the true victor. The one who will not be defeated. The one who cannot be defeated. The one who will never be defeated. And you know him.